I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. And we're here to talk about minutes, what, five through eight of Pump Up the Volume. Yes. And wherever that takes us. Because this starts with Everybody Knows, Leonard Cohen starting, which is the song this movie's famous for, and the movie this song is famous for, even though it wasn't on the soundtrack, Leonard Cohen's version. Concrete Blondes is. We'll get to them later. Leonard Cohen's version, of course, released in 1988 on I'm Your Man, Written by Leonard Cohen and Sharon Robinson. Uh, recorded, I couldn't tell for sure, the album was recorded in Los Angeles and Montreal. So it may have been recorded in Montreal, which is where the high school was that this movie is based on. Uh, it, where it's where director, we'll get to his credit this segment, director Alan Moyles, I believe his sister, worked at a school where they allegedly had a situation like this, where they were deliberately getting rid of like immigrants and undesirables to bring up their record. And so that's the high school he based it on. I don't know the specific Montreal high school. There's probably a lot. But Hubert Humphrey High is based on a real place. Although I'm pretty sure there's schools all across the country that are doing the oh, same yeah. thing. That one just got caught or was more egregious? or <laughs> I, I couldn't tell from the note. And when I looked it up, since I don't know the name of the specific school, I couldn't find it. But it just seems that this is one that Moyle specifically knew about because uh-huh. his sister worked there. So maybe they got caught. Maybe it was something they never got in trouble for. He just knew about it. They had a problem with it. And he hadn't made a movie in a while. We'll get his credit later. I was going to mention his movies, but he hadn't made a movie since 1980. Oh, wow. Because that movie had uh, supposedly been like taken away from him in post-production, and someone else edited it and released it, and he didn't like the final version. So he kind of went away for a while. And then came back with this one. So he had only made, I think it's four movies before this. I'll get to that when we get to that in my notes, because his credit. It was interesting looking at Everybody Knows yesterday because it's a song I've known for years and listened to a lot. Then apparently I had never listened to the whole album. And I, I really liked that the first track, uh, First We Take Manhattan, kind of lyrically fits this movie really well, but tonally is a little too cheery because it's basically about rebellion. It's outright yes. saying, yeah, we're going to go take over. We're going to start with Manhattan and then Berlin. <laughs> and he says... uh they sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within, which I thought was a good line in relation to like, what this movie's kind of about. But tonally, I don't think Mark would have played it. Because it's, it's a little too happy sounding, despite its subject matter. Maybe, though. He have those moments to his personality. Where mm-hmm. he was... <laughs> I, I think they used Everybody Knows, aside from its lyrics, are awesome. It also immediately sounds cynical. Yeah. It's that really gravelly version of Cohen's voice that, and low and repetitive. Everybody knows is cynical in itself, just the phrase, because why are you bothering to say this if everybody knows? It's because it's a bunch of bullshit that everybody knows and it sucks. They're going to repeat it over and over. Yeah. Or that everybody knows and nobody likes it, but that everybody, or at least most people are accepting it and not doing anything about it. Yeah. Also a thought, is it because this song would have been more recognizable than a lot of the other things that we just scroll by on his tape stack. At the time, I actually don't think so. I think Mm -hmm. it wasn't even like the single for the album. Uh, I forget which song it was, but there was a, when, when you look up the album online, it talks like reviews talk about other songs first before they get to that one. But this, 
this movie and a couple others and kind of made it into more of a thing because some I mean, the whole generation that saw this movie when they were young love this song and know this song. And then it got left off the soundtrack and it was funny because it was also used in Exotica, which would have been like five, six years later. And then it got left off that soundtrack as well. Oh wow. So. I don't know why that is. Probably some weird rights issue, although they do, I mean, they're able to use it, but that's also probably one of the reasons this movie is not readily available streaming or on like Blu-ray or anything because there's a lot of music in this movie. And speaking of music, we see more tapes. Yeah. So. In, in this. I had a lot of fun just researching things about the different tapes that we see as we scroll. So, and just how much the specific tapes that he had and the specific artists that he had relate to different societal problems and just thematically the what he was arguing in terms of rebellion and wanting to encourage people toward rebellion. So we have, and this isn't in order, but we have Primal Scream and Jesus and Mary Chain. And for people who might not know, there were a few members from Primal Scream who were also members of Jesus and Mary Chain. So they actually went back and forth in terms of like which band was performing and which members were present. But both Primal Scream and Jesus and Mary Chain had albums released in 1989, which is when they would have been filming. And they were both these just very hard rock punk type of vibe. And the Primal Scream song, Loaded, which was their most popular song on that 1989 album, fits thematically very closely because the spoken word part in the beginning is just, what is it that you want to do? We want to be free. We want to be free to do what we want to do. And Mm. that carries throughout the song. Jim Reed, who is in Jesus and Mary Chain, through his microphone stand at a group of audience members once and ended up with a court case because <laughs> they were heckling him and he didn't like it. So, um, yeah, they were both pretty rebellious. You had Bad Brains, which I don't know if you'd ever heard of them no. before. I'd never heard of them before looking them up. They also had an album that they released in 1989 called Quickness, and one of their songs was specifically about the AIDS crisis in 1990, the year that the film was released, was the first year that 100,000 people died from AIDS-related complications in a single year. And that band also took a lot of heat for that song because they had homophobic lyrics in it, which I'm not going to repeat for the show, because I don't want to do so. Later when they were interviewed, they apologized for equating homosexuality with the AIDS crisis in the song and said that it was something that they regretted. 1990 was a huge year in terms of the AIDS crisis, but also turning a, a corner in that it was the first year that we saw, well, not the first year because there were drugs to treat HIV in the 80s, but It was a year that it became more widely available and was also a year that the Americans with Disabilities Act included protections for people with HIV. Continuing on that stack of music, we see Concrete Blonde, and they released their song Joey, which is one of my favorite songs of all time, in 1990. It was from their most successful album titled Bloodletting. And Jeanette Napolitano wrote this song specifically for her boyfriend at the time, Mark Moreland, 
He was the lead singer of Wall of Voodoo, and he was battling an addiction with alcohol, and she wrote that song about what, about her experiences loving somebody with an addiction and how she was able to manage her relationship with him while he was going through some of the worst parts of his addiction. And subsequently, Mark Moreland ended up dying of renal failure following a liver transplant that he needed to have because of his alcoholism, and he died at the age of 44. That song in particular, I think, has some of the just rawest vocals and raw emotion of any song that I've ever heard that's charted. And part of the lyrics from that song, she says, I know you've heard it all before, so I don't say it anymore. I'll just stand by and let you fight your secret war. And though I used to wonder why, I used to cry till I was dry. Oh, Joey, if you're hurting, so am I. And yeah, I I don't... For anybody who has watched someone struggle with an addiction or watch someone who is suffering and they love the person but they don't know how to to help them. It's a pretty powerful song. So, so far we just, we have rebellion. We have the songs about the AIDS crisis. We have songs about addiction. I think of all of the tapes that he has there, Ice-T fits the most closely thematically in terms of what the movie is trying to do. So Ice-T's album, The Iceberg, Freedom of Speech, Just Watch What You Say, is Ice-T's darkest and grittiest album. Ice-T said that the concept for this album, which has a cover of shotguns going into both ears and a shotgun directly into the mouth. When asked about the concept of his album cover, Ice-T said, go ahead and say what you want, but then here comes the government. And then here comes the parents, and they're ready to destroy you when you open your mouth. It was only three years earlier that we had Tipper Gore's advocacy group that prompted labels to put parental advisory stickers on albums. Uh-huh. And <laughs> it was only a couple years, just right before before that was the late 80s, when she published the book Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. <laughs> so, but I really liked Ice T's quote there say it's almost the thesis of the film and the other things in the stack were something that probably says hard beats that kill which is probably a mixtape we it doesn't seem to exist a tape of prince sessions from detroit which i couldn't figure out what songs that would involve and a jfk speech on a tape and then we see a few of the tapes we already saw last minute soundgarden pixies and then we finally get toward Mark. It takes six and a half minutes of the movie before we actually see him. And right before we see him, we get, you can tell the director of photography liked the shot because they follow a stream of smoke down to a lit cigarette sitting there. And you get director of photography credit for Walt Lloyd. And we pan across some more of Mark's stuff. The song everybody knows is still playing. And we see a couple more tapes, a couple that were probably the props were just moved. We see little rubber figures of, I think it's Nixon and Gorbachev. And then the camera focuses on his little wind-up dancing penis for a little while, and then comes back to the record turning for Alan Moyle's credit as written and directed by. So do you think it was subtle or not so subtle that he has a JFK speech with all of the tapes that he likes? He liked whatever speech this was, and I wanted to look up 
this yeah, movie I wish won a lot speech. of yeah. <laughs> which one? But he has JFK's speech that he listens to repetitively, um, or at least enough that it's in his regular stack of. Or maybe even played on his show. Yeah, and then we have on the other side politically Nixon and Gorbachev, who are bobbleheads. So already making a political statement just with those visuals. But before we get to Mark himself, we also see that he has an iguana, which will come up later. Uh, he has a spray of bullshit repellent, which is just silly. We see his address because we see he gets mail addressed to Happy Harry Hardon at a, a box 2710 in Paradise Hills, Arizona with a fake uh, zip code 34012. And we, there's a great pin sitting just loose on the desk that said, being weird isn't enough. Yeah, I love the pin. I noticed that one. <laughs> so, because that's definitely something that he argues later on. There's a quote that relates to that. Yeah. It'll come up later. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Alan Moyle's credit comes up over the record. The song continues in the background, but Mark mm-hmm. comes in with talking. I just want to reference that I already said Alan Moyle hadn't made a movie since 1980. That was called Times Square. He'd also made Rubber Gun in 77, and East End Hustle in Montreal, Maine in 76 and 74, respectively. And they're all kind of about outside the mainstream characters. So the movies, one movie's about prostitutes, one movie is about a gay man and a teenage boy, and Times Square was, I believe, about a, two girls who start a punk band. Although that one had been taken out of his control, and so he, did, he kind of stepped away from movies for a while. And then Mark comes in, talking. And his monologue this time isn't that exciting, like the one that started the movie and some we get later, but we get a lot of cutaways to other teenagers listening, some of which we will see later in the film. We see the kid who's going to be selling cassettes later. We see we see Maz out in his car in the sports field behind the school, which is the field behind Saga's High School, along with Joey, played by Seth Green, is in the car with him. And we see Annie and I think Jonathan... Her boyfriend are out there in a car, and so we're already starting this gathering of people that go outside to listen to the radio. They're already establishing that he doesn't necessarily have a huge audience, but he has a loyal enough audience that he has that stack of letters that's there. People are writing to him, and he has enough of a loyal audience that kids from different groups in the school, like it's not just outcast kids are listening to him, or just popular kids are listening to him. He has a cross-section of students who are listening to him. and it's also interesting because they are listening together. Because Maz and Joey are in a car listening. Annie and Jonathan are together. There's two girls talking on the phone while they both listen. There's two boys that's talking on the phone while they both listen. And we don't see Janie in this segment, but we see Nora has her phone up to the radio. So clearly she's also on a phone call with her friend. And so he's bringing... He doesn't know it yet, but he's bringing this community of teenagers together. Yeah. And it won't be until later until they know what to do What now that they're together. But the movie is establishing pretty quickly that, yeah, he has an audience and that audience is connecting with him and connecting with each other. Then we do get to the interesting part of his speech where he says, my dad sold out uh, and my mom sold out years ago when she had me. And then they sold me out when they brought me to this hole in the world. Hey, they made me everything I am today, so naturally I hate the bastards. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so on the one hand, pretty typical teenage boy Gen X angst of hating your parents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the parents would have been the baby boomer hippies who got older and did what most baby boomer hippies did, which was 
get jobs and buy homes, and they were in a position to be able to do so in a way no other generation really has. I mean, now we see with now we see millennials and Gen Z even becoming adults that struggle to hit a lot of these milestones because of economics, because of things like COVID and all of these crises. But the baby boomers had the benefit of a post-World War II booming economy, um, more people who were able to get a college education. And so they had that hippie rebellion when they were young, but then found themselves able to. And obviously this isn't everybody and there's a whole set of like racism and sexism and who had access to this American dream and who didn't. But for many of the white rebellious middle class hippies, they had access to education and jobs. And so just took them. <laughs> yeah, and one of the flaws, I think we already mentioned it last time and it'll come up again in this movie, is that it is very white. I mean, to be fair, it's Arizona yeah. in 1990, which was also very white, other than, you know, the Hispanic side of the population, which probably is pretty big, but a movie in 1990 is going to ignore them for the most part, other than Luis Chavez, who we know nothing about. So, yeah, it's going to be very typical white teenage privileged angst. Yes. And... The uh, part of Mark's thing, we'll, we'll get to his sexual things as a, as a teenage boy in a moment, but he also is, says he's running a contest for ideas on how to put his parents out of their misery. So he's pretending he's going to kill them as well, which nowadays would probably have been a red flag long before they bothered Paul calling the FCC. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking in terms of what to say on the radio. It even shocked me a little bit from 2020. I'm like, is he threatening to... <laughs> I, like, I think his tone he's clearly joking but yeah that you, they legally i don't think people care much about that yeah <laughs> there'd be a talking to if he was on an actual radio show and uh rather than talk about him pretending to masturbate i like we get to see that nora not only was on the phone talking probably to Janie, but she has a coffee maker in her room so she's we we never see her parents even when she gets kicked out, we don't see them. And she's very independent. She presumably stays up late. We don't, we know his show starts at 10. Yeah. We don't know how long he's gone. Maz says later that sometimes he's on for five minutes. Sometimes I think, I think he says five hours, but I don't know oh. if that ever actually happened. Yeah. Maybe it did. And so she's ready to stay up late. She's up drawing. Her walls are covered in ads for magazines, posters, pictures. There's some band art that I, I could tell it was banned, but I couldn't tell what it was because it's blurry in the background. I don't know if we see stuff better later. And then she's drawing, like, black and white, sort of Picasso-esque drawing that she's doing the hair with, like, pastels. So she's, they're showing us that she is a more interesting character that we're going to get to know more about. She's not talking in the sequence. Yeah, she's, she's by just, herself she's doing her She's just listening art. and doing yeah. something. <laughs> and we, we see, yeah, more of the two girls talking, the two guys talking as they all listen to what they think is him masturbating on the air, which is going to be a regular occurrence in the film as part of his persona of happy Harry Hardon or Hard Harry. That fortunately for the, I guess, I guess it's good that the movie comes in when it does because he now is when he starts to do other things and he gets in, interested in his listeners and they call in about their real problems. And he isn't just the adolescent boy. Where does that fit in in terms of Shock jocks, because I'm forgetting my timeline. Were people like Howard Stern on the radio before him, after yes. him? 
Um, yeah, at this point, Howard Stern would have been in New York and doing his shock jock thing and becoming very popular, being, he was already being, um, rebroadcast on an LA station and other stations around the country. It's like you could, I, I started listening to Howard Stern in high school, off and on. Most of his show I didn't care for for the same reason I don't like this part of Harry's show. I always liked the end of Howard Stern's show when they would get to the news, because usually their news segment, I think, was scheduled for, like, the last 20 minutes of the show. The show was supposed to end at 10 a.m. Yeah. The news would sometimes go past noon. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, it, and it would get very interesting, because while, on the one hand, they're getting ratings because they do crazy, outlandish stuff, like the things you see in the movie Private Parts, where they're doing the game show, where they tricking people into saying, like, perverse things. They also were thinking people wanted to be on the air to talk, actually talk about stuff. Yeah, and it is interesting. You knew that about Howard Stern because you listened to him. I, I didn't ever listen to Howard Stern. And when we've talked about this film, said you related a lot to Mark. And I said, I like this film and appreciate this film, but more in spite of Mark sometimes. Because <laughs> I don't particularly like a lot about him as a character. Well, it's it's funny because Alan Moyle compares the character as he wrote him to a mix of Holden Caulfield and Lenny Bruce. And I think Holden Caulfield's the same way. People who read Catcher in the Rye are like, he's a whiny little asshole who's way too up his own ass. Yeah. When he's got everything. And then there's people who read that and are like, well, yeah, but he's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the world is awful. Adults are bullshitters who ruin everything and tell you what to do when they're not even doing it. And so it's, yeah, Mark is very much that sort of character in it. It's because he has everything that he's able to complain about, well, anything. Exactly. The thing that he's complaining about is a lack of freedom or a lack of ability to do what he wants to do, resenting his parents, stuck in this town in Arizona. But we found that he has already found a way to do what he wants to do and have a voice and have access and have an audience. And it's partly because he is a white middle-class boy with access to equipment and the ability to broadcast and to say things that most other people wouldn't have had. So, I don't know. It is, on the one hand, yes, he's right. On the other hand, sometimes, at least for me, it's hard to find as much sympathy or empathy for him as a character because it's like with Holden Caulfield you want to say well you have everything you have two parents in your house who loves you you have a father with a job good enough to allow you to have all of the things that you have you have a mother who he specifically says that she sold out when she had him meaning becoming a parent and she I think is a stay-at-home parent who's it's not clear but I think so (laughs) is at least around enough to that we see that she's a good well, yeah, we see that they both ask them about school. Yeah. They have a conversation at the dinner table <laughs> about things. And we learn specifically he has his radio set up because his parents got him a ham radio mm-hmm. so he could contact his friends back home. So mm-hmm. they're even looking out for him when they move him to this little town in Arizona. Yes. But yet he's so angry and resentful that he wants to kill them. But <laughs> yeah. I think that's just a part of teenagehood because you were talking about catcher in the rye i read that when i was a teenager Mm -hmm. and it was actually my boyfriend at the time who had given me his copy that was just underlined and folded all the way through and he's like you gotta read this it's the greatest book ever and i read it and i was like 
oh my gosh, you're so right. This is the greatest book ever. And then we added more notes to it. And then it became like a whole us against the world thing. And he and I used to talk about all these political ideas and things that we would do. And <laughs> he was very socialistic in high school. And now 30 years later, he's just from the little bit that I've seen on social media, very conservative Republican, absolute <laughs> opposite of that kind of guy. And my son who loved Catcher in the Rye gave it to me to read this past year. And I read it and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> reading it again now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> At age 44, I'm just like, ugh. And so <laughs> it is interesting how just time and how you have different perspectives and yeah. how and the thing is, it's not that I, I personally don't still want a rebellion or don't care about social issues or don't think that everything's fucked up. Like, I absolutely do. I just don't relate as much to Holden being the character to express that or being the yeah. one that seemingly, like, I, have str I struggle with finding empathy for him being the one to complain. So it's like yeah. all these privileged white male characters complaining it's, about it. It's similar to Mark here in that his rebellion starts before he has a reason for it, which goes back all the way to like Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. It's like, why are you angry? Everything's fine. But once you are angry, good if you do something with it. Like the year before this, Dead Poet Society, another movie that hit similar in a similar way for me as a teenager, came out and yeah, that's a bunch of privileged white boys who are at a private school. But the movie shows you how that private school is being used against them because the teachers are strict. The one's father is forcing him to become a doctor when he doesn't want to. And, you know, they, it shows you their problem. This, this movie has a little trouble in that it doesn't ever show us, other than his inability to talk to Nora when he likes her, what Mark's problem is in the start. It, it shows us he's already got a show. He's already got Maz and Joey going outside to listen to it. He's got loyal listeners who are calling each other. So it's not starting with like the first time he goes on the air and trying to figure out a reason. He's been on the air without a reason. Yeah. And I'm thinking this might come up more later, but there's an interesting aspect with even though he is a white teenage boy with privilege and access, he still struggles quite a lot just to have a basic conversation or a conversation that is meaningful with a another person and that is how a lot of boys are raised to struggle to have any type of intimate or meaningful conversation and now we see just with studies that have been done over the past generation a huge increase of boys who say that they're lonely recent studies over 40 percent of teenage boys said that they felt high levels extreme loneliness and higher levels of depression and feeling more isolated and the number of friendships that boys say that they have has also gone down over the past generation. I wonder how much of that is changes in uh, reporting and studying over changes in instances like that's always been a problem we just didn't pay attention to it because instead we were instead of studying it we were like you have to man up and you know join a sport make something yourself because I, I don't imagine we don't really get athletes in this movie. I guess the, the one kid does talk, does talk about, uh, the, his gay interaction is with a, I think, a football player. But we never meet that football player. Although they are on a sports field. When they're listening to his show. So it kind of ignores that part of the high school. But, I mean, that's... I think there's any significance for them being on 
a field? Is that just where they're getting better reception if it's away from other That's what they say. (laughs) Visually, I think it's interesting because it gives us, I mean, it's a radio crowd. You're not going to see how big it is. But if you Mm -hmm. see the audience gathering in the field, you know it's big. And you can see them interacting. And that's part of the thing is he's building a community within the community of Paradise Hills. And so you need a visual for that for a movie. Otherwise, I don't know if it matters that it's the sports field at the high school. Until the end of the movie, I don't think we can quite even tell it's the sports field at the high school because they always film it toward the hill instead of toward the buildings. And so I don't know. I think by the end it matters because, and we can get to that much later, because of like the popularity of sports at a high school. And now suddenly they have this huge crowd that are gathered for Mark. Yeah. Right at the point where he realizes he's the rebellious voice he's been looking for. But there's a lot of convinces him. But we'll get to that much later in the movie. As for the rest of this segment, we get Paige in her, you know, nice flowery wallpaper, pink girly bed. She's got school books out and she's listening to Mark's show instead. And then her father comes in. She has a Yale interview tomorrow. And so she should get to sleep. And like Mark, she's has everything, but is not happy with it. Yeah. And visually, it's interesting that her room still comes across more little girl than teenagers mm-hmm. and it's so busy she has like just one post well it's, it's busy because the wallpaper exactly. it's not busy like nora's where it's decorated i think she has yeah. one poster up yes but just the wallpaper and the decorate it uh, to me it just felt so oppressive and so busy it's like on the one hand it's very pretty and pink and, mm-hmm. but, but it just uh, i wouldn't want to spend a lot of time in that Room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a set or if it was just a weird blocking choice for how they filmed it, but I kind of like that we don't actually see the father enter or exit mm. because this is sort of like the way she would see it. It's sort of like her prison cell that is like flowery because that's what they want her to be. Yes. They want her to be this good, pretty, happy girl who's going to go to Yale. But when we cut to him after saying, let's say, hi, beautiful, we cut, he's already in the room. And the way the door is open, he can't have come through it. Yeah, that's Because it's I mostly closed time. behind him. Yeah. And then when he leaves, he turns back to the door and it cuts back to Paige before he grabs the door and has to open it and leave. So there's no actual exit or entrance. It's like he's like always there. He's the, like omnipresent in her life. And we've already seen him drop her off at school and ta- tell her that she can't have any dates tonight because she's got the interview tomorrow. Yeah. So he's controlling her life in a way that will eventually get to her. Or has already gotten to it. And then right at the end, she turns her radio back up after her father walks out, and Mark is about to read mail. So Mark's still on the eighth. Let's say that's unseen, but send a performance. Yes. (laughs) And end segment. (laughs) So, any other thoughts on this segment? I mean, a lot of this stuff will keep coming up because that's the way the movie is. Okay, I have one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because we, you were talking about the music, so I didn't talk about like, it keeps showing, panning and tracking shots up and down and along his desk, which has all his cassettes and his music, his various equipment pieces for the radio show. He's also got what is probably magazines like, I guess, Playboy or probably some cheap version because mm-hmm. it's got like ads for penis enlargement, some ad for some other. You can't see him very clearly because all his stuff is a mess. Mm-hmm. Things stacked on other things. Under his mail, he's he's got the little wind-up penis. He's got cigarettes. He's got his Pepsi and his thing. He's a very busy... His desk is like Nora's room. Yeah. And so visually, they're very busy-minded people, which are good yeah. characters to have at the center of your film. You get the impression, even before you see him, 
that he has a lot going on. You've already heard his voice, so he has a head start. But that's good. You do, it's not like we're cutting in on him talking. We're like, who is this guy? We have a good sense of who he is before we get to it. So visually, it seems like they did a great job showing you the minds of all of the major characters. Even some of the minor ones, like yeah. just the fact that like the one guy is sitting on a couch with a box of Captain Crunch open. Yeah, the snacks and the Brussels. And the, the girl with the bag of the, <laughs> the Brussels. And the guy with the ponytail is clearly still studying, even though we know it's after 10 o'clock. Like, he's got homework. And they're doing things. And we'll see more of some of their rooms later because a few of them are on the show. But yeah, we're getting a sense that the, the movie wants us to see them as individual people, which is good. Yes. Even though at this point they don't have names. Yeah, and it's already setting up ideas. And I would point out, speaking of no names, the one name we do have, when we have two names, we don't know Mark's real name. We know he's Hard Harry, and we hear Paige's name so far, and then we've heard Luis and Cheryl, but we don't know them. They're not in the sequence. They're gone. And so we're meeting we're meeting characters in a weird order. We're meeting a fictional one, and we're meeting one that we don't know why she matters yet. So it's nice. And otherwise, I think we're good for the segment. Yeah. So, you can go first this time. Tell them about your other show. So, my other show is Life as a Playlist, where I discuss both life stories and current events and provide social commentary, the backdrop of Billboard Top 40 Hits. And you can find Life as a Playlist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's pages, and then also just listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast. I have many shows, so I'll just mention, again, Annihilation Minute, because that's kind of my favorite right now, where I go very dense and in-depth with research into genetics and literature and opera and very weird tangents for a science fiction film with a lot of quiet moments. It's every Thursday, and you can find that Annihilation Minute on social media or links to that and my other shows and this show on lemmingdrops.com. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going! Pick a name! Go on the air! Your life! Take charge of it! Do it! Try it! Try anything! Fill your guts out! Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to, but you decide! Just fill the air! Steal it! Keep the air alive! And you can find this show at Pump Up the Minute on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Talk hard! Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it Everybody knows Everybody knows